0: I feel very brave. We are going to do a sermon series this fall in the year of our Lord 2022 at a hippie church like Awaken on the book of Romans, which I have referred to, and I don't know if this is culturally incompetent or not, but as the big kahuna of the Bible. Uh, Romans is uh, the most influential book uh, in the entire Bible uh, in terms of its influence on shaping evangelical theology, uh, reformed theology, but the book of Romans is, is a hefty, a hefty boy. It's it's a big book. It is. It, it's big. More commentaries. I, I think Peter Enns once said, more cars are parked in the parking lot of Romans than any other parking lot in the Bible. More commentaries, more theologies, probably more denominations, sort of you can understand the differences based on ways of reading Romans. Uh, and, and it's an important book and um, recently I think we've kind of earned a little bit of a reputation in our denomination and in, in, among all of our Evangelical kin um, as more of a like progressive church And they're like, oh, well, you know And Some people are worried that maybe we had to rip out pages of our Bible in order to get there And I'm like we've not we've absolutely not let's let's sit down with the Bible and, and, and show um our comfortability with um, our conviction as a church that um, the scriptures are our scriptures so let's go into Romans so we're doing it 10 weeks in Romans Um, I'm very excited Uh, my PhD is on uh, Paul in Acts basically and um, in the book of Acts you get to see all the background of Paul so Romans is a very important book Um, although I will say if you if you talk to people about Romans they'll most likely say it's kind of the book about individual salvation sanctification um, but If you spend some time in it, going through it as one unified text, instead of a grab bag of quotes, you discover that there's a lot more than meets the eye. So, so much of the Christian encounter with Scripture consists of skimming the surface, looking for easy answers or slogans, settling for something that can be controlled or manipulated for our own ends, What such readings seem to need is a text that will not hurt anyone, that will not challenge anyone, or correct or enlarge our imagination for God's world. Um, And so in the book of Romans you hear uh, the theme of salvation come up a lot. And if you're like me, I, I went to training seminars on how to walk people down the Romans road to salvation. I did that lots. I walked a lot of people down that road. And it was like you just bounce around and you pull these quotes out and boom, salvation, individual salvation. But I'm not sure. I think um, Paul's dream uh, that we see in the book of Romans is so much bigger than what I thought it was when I was learning about this kind of five-step journey to salvation. In the book of Romans, um, when it comes to salvation in particular, a careful study of Romans means finding that salvation is far more complex, more cosmic, more challenging than we have uh, been able to imagine here, especially in the West. So before I jump in, um, today we're mostly talking about Romans 1 to 7, a little bit, sort of 1 to 17, Um, but before I put that up, it has been up this whole time, great, lovely, so (laughs) it's fine, either you were listening to me or reading that, so win-win, but um, before we dive in and I read this to you, I just want you need to know a little bit about Romans. So Paul, who wrote Romans, um, and Romans is one of the undisputed Pauline uh, letters, um, Paul was executed by the Romans, you know, he was executed by the state. Capital punishment, state execution, state sanctioned execution um, in about AD 64, which would be before any of the four gospels were written. So Paul's written Romans, lived his whole missionary life and died before Matthew, Mark, Luke or John even existed as like a text that was circulating. It's wild. Um, Romans was also the last text that Paul would have written. So this is it, like his theology, you know, he's working it out. He's working out how he shares it to different communities. And Romans is the last one. Um, It's not a letter just written by a nice man trying to save souls from hell. There's more to it. Uh, We know that Paul traveled with Luke, so you'll often find similarities between um, Paul's letters and some of the ways Jesus' life and story is presented in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and, And the big thing that Paul was known for and the big thing kind of that led to his execution, which is pretty significant, is Paul's radical break with tradition. Paul was a faithful member uh, of, of the Pharisees, uh, a faithful keeper and um, shaper of and being shaped by uh, a Jewish tradition, um, a, a tradition of reading the Old Testament scriptures where you saw that the scriptures are clear, you have to be circumcised. Sorry, get out of here with your liberal agenda. Don't water down our gospel. you got to be circumcised to be on the inside. Um, and there were certain traditions, there were certain laws and rules, and it was non-negotiable and it was part of a longstanding tradition. Um, but Paul kind of broke with that based on a radical encounter with Jesus. He saw that we can judge people not on their status of as circumcised or uncircumcised, uh, male, female, or Jew, Greek, slave, not enslaved. Um, we could actually just kind of treat people based on the fruits of the Spirit, which is a lot more work, way easier to just be like, oh, male, leadership but to actually have to test and be like, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, oh man, it takes a lot more work. Uh, And so Paul is is envisioning this community of people that are joined by by their faithfulness to Jesus um, and edified by the spirit, um, which is producing fruit in our midst through one another. And you can imagine he was rejected by his his own people uh, in a lot of ways for this break with tradition. Um, Paul had Roman citizenship, something Jesus didn't have. Roman citizens weren't crucified. Only the indigenous um, sort of people living under Roman occupation um, were treated to such an inhumane and and undignified uh, form of execution. Paul, as a Roman citizen, would not be subject to crucifixion. Um, And because he was a Roman citizen, he was able to appeal to Rome. Like, you cannot just execute me, sir. I am a Roman citizen. And so that's why he was able to appeal to an audience in the, you know, in the federal court, so to speak. Um, Paul there's something important I want else I wanted to say that was really wild um, yeah he, he even though he has Roman citizenship and, and can appeal to that uh, privilege access to privilege um, he still ends up being executed in a way of thinking that like what does it mean to live in a, a, a nation and not have citizenship I was reflecting this morning on how um, indigenous women in Canada weren't given the right to vote until 1967 that's the year my mom was born couldn't vote like you couldn't vote in a Canadian election without giving up your status as an indigenous person Um, and so that kind of like having citizenship or not was a really important thing even for Canadians um, not that long ago if you know anyone here um, who's immigrated from another nation and they're awaiting status as a Canadian citizen uh, you can sort of understand Paul had citizenship Jesus did not a lot of the early church did not but Paul did Um, So, okay, moving on, Um, Paul uh, was executed by the state uh, during the reign of Nero, Um, but before that, however, he wrote the book of Romans, Um, the church, the house churches that he was addressing Romans to, um, he had not yet met, most likely, he likely wrote Romans while he was in Corinth, Um, he would have written it with Phoebe, and Phoebe would have been the one to deliver the letter to the house churches in Rome, and then read it, and stay with them, and unpack it, and explain it, and teach it to them, and it would have taken many weeks, maybe months, for her to do that faithfully. Um, so, Paul, uh, Paul's assemblies, the, the churches which he wrote to, whether it's the assemblies in Philippi or Ephesus or Corinth, um, were largely composed of urban poor folks um, who lived their lives right at the line between subsistence and crisis. So, I don't know if that resonates with any of you. If you're, like, right on the edge there, like, I'm three missed paychecks away from crisis, that line, that's where the vast majority of Paul's um, congregants, Paul's people um, would have lived. Um, And Paul uh, loved his congregations very much. Uh, He he wrote not as a systematic theologian, but very much as a, a heartbroken mother of these children who are struggling to get along. Uh, And he he even calls himself a mother of these children in in a few of his letters. Um, But it's pretty profound to think of this man was executed um, by the Roman state. And this is his last letter and is written to Rome. And if you can picture on a map, I don't know if geography is your thing. Jerusalem is a long ways away from Rome. If you're a Palestinian Jew in the first century, Rome is the end of the world. And Paul was going there. He was going to go to Rome. Um, The letter arrived before him, and when he finally did arrive in Rome, he was in chains between officers awaiting his trial and eventual execution. And so, Paul, uh, this is his letter. He was rejected by everyone and had a dream that everyone would be together at the table. So just to, um, I'll read this, and then I want to read you a text from chapter 9 of Romans so you can kind of get a feel of what Paul's headspace was at when he wrote this text. Um, In one Romans 1, 1 to 7. So, the the address to this, the beginning of this letter, he says, from Paul, a slave. (laughs) Just try and imagine the social location of a slave in the Roman Empire in the capital city of the Roman Empire. And Paul's like, I'm with them. First line. This is a radically political text. First line. Paul, a slave. He could say, a Roman citizen, thank you very much. Uh, A Pharisee, well respected in my community. No, he said, a slave. So, the slaves in the room, (laughs) in you know, the receiving of this letter would have been like, wait, what? This is a man with great honor. Yes, this is the beginning of the book of Romans. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for God's good news. That word is gospel. God promised this good news slash gospel about his son ahead of time through his prophets and the holy scriptures. So he appeals to his uh, reverence for like our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. His son was descended from David. He was publicly identified as God's son with power through his resurrection from the dead, which was based on the spirit of holiness. This son is Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received God's grace and our appointment to be apostles. This was to bring all Gentiles to faithful obedience for his name's sake. You who are called by Jesus Christ are also included among these Gentiles. So when we think of the schism sort of between Jew and Gentile, there's complexity there. But don't, um, it, depending on where you are, it could be that the Gentiles are like these outsiders that have been told they're not allowed in and they're not fully welcome in, you know, you shall not pass, you can only come this far. Um, but in other ways, the Gentiles are like the Romans, our oppressors, the ones we have to pay taxes to. <laughs> uh, so depending on which so- social location you're reading this, it's like you are called to be among these Gentiles as your, as your kin. Could be pretty radical uh, rearrangement of, of sort of the social way things worked to those in Rome who are dearly loved by God and called to be God's people grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ well this is more there's a whole bunch going on here if you don't understand the way people in Rome talk about uh, their powers and authorities we might miss what's going on here so first of all I want to just flip to the next slide which is a text from Romans 9 um, this is Paul telling us about hi- uh, the occasion for writing the book It's his great sorrow and anguish. He wrote the whole book of Romans in great sorrow and anguish. Uh, Cosmic sorrow even, we'll see in in the, not yet, but in the next slide of Romans 8. Um, Some translations in your Bible read, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I can only remember a handful of times in my life where I could say I had unceasing anguish. Think about a time in your life. Those are strong words, those are strong emotions. Unceasing anguish. Paul wrote Romans in that space. And it's not just Paul's anguish and constant pain. Paul writes because as a faithful follower of Jesus, he has come uh, dangerously close to the anguish of our world and those in our communities and our neighborhoods who are living in a state of great sorrow and unceasing anguish. And so in Romans 8, he talks about how the whole uh, of creation is in a state of great sorrow and unceasing anguish. It says in Romans 8, 22 to 23, we know that the whole creation is groaning together and suffering labor pains up until now. And it's not only the creation. We ourselves who have the spirit as the first crop of the harvest also grown inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. When a slave talks about waiting for his body to be set free to a room full of people who are enslaved or on the edge of slavery, that's pretty powerful. And then he talks about how all of creation, and he's talking about, you know, the blue whales and the cedar trees, (laughs) the rhinos, like all of the things in our creation that are in bondage uh, and suffering under the tyranny of what, progress, I guess we could call it. Later on in chapter 8, um, he says even the Holy Spirit is in a state of great anguish and unceasing sorrow. 826 says in the same way the Spirit comes to help our weakness. We don't know what we should pray, but the Spirit, and um, in, in the Greek, um, in Hebrew, Spirit is she uses she, her pronouns. In the Greek, it's neutral. Uh, so it's like a non-binary. So in our English translations, we're like, oh, neutral just means he, but a, a more faithful transition, uh, translation would be they then for a non-binary spirit person in the Greek. So I put, but the spirit themselves pleads our case with unexpressed groans. Like if you've been in a state of unceasing anguish, you can't get words out. You just kind of get groans out just like, cries of pain and the Spirit is interceding on our behalf with these groans of unceasing pain and sorrow because we wait for the redemption of all things and so we have to read the book of Romans alongside people who are in pain with eyes open reading the news and knowing noticing the way the creation around us is in pain and the way the Spirit is not silencing or ignoring that pain or saying, come on, just be happy. Um, The book of Romans was written from a place of pain. And it makes sense. Um, Go to the next slide, I think. We'll see. What is it? Oh, no. Go back. Go back to Romans. That'll come in a second. (laughs) Um, You have to understand what uh, Roman oppression meant um, to people living under the Roman occupation. Um, Jewish subjugation under the Roman Empire was the matrix, not merely the background of the story of Jesus. It's the matrix. Um, uh, did you know that there's ancient uh, documents reporting um, complaints of all the pollution due to the Roman Empire? It's hard to imagine pollution before like electricity. Um, but pollution, because of all the fires and just the way the city, everybody together, um, pollution. Uh, taxes, unbearable taxes. You can imagine how much pressure there was on the rural farmers to supply grain to the city. Um, to get grain quickly into the cities, you build roads very quickly, and when we pull, uh, we're getting food into the city. Uh, we need to get water away from the rivers and into the farmlands so we can get grain. So then there's no water, and the, then the water that is in the river is like getting dirtier and dirtier, and less and less drinkable for folks who live further downstream. Um, we have uh, extreme exploitation, uh, unemployment, um, un- unaccessible housing. Um, Sexual exploitation. Um, Sexual violence, extremely common, domestic violence is like normal, commonplace. Um, Complaints of deforestation. Um, There are texts, um, even in Isaiah, that um, when the great day of the Lord comes, the trees will rejoice, saying, no one comes to cut us down anymore. Because you need trees to fight in a war. You need trees to build ships. You need trees to make an empire. Um, And some of the last stands of cedar trees left in the world are in Canada. Uh, and so the Romans is both very ancient and very relevant and very new. Um, under the Romans, there was uh, constant oppression. Um, Roman soldiers were often gifted land um, as a way of saying, thank you for fighting in our wars. Um, and the, then they were gifted land that, guess what, already belonged to other people, but you just kick them off the land and then the farm now belongs to the Roman soldier, but don't worry, he'll employ you <laughs> for less than minimum wage to work the farm that was your family's for many generations. Um, so not not quite so different from uh, some of the realities here today in our world. Um, So there's a a crying out against this Roman oppression. Um, The Romans um, had their own gospel. Did you know that the term gospel is not new to Christianity? Gospel is a very politically loaded term. Think of like a political manifesto would be called a gospel. The gospel, according to Caesar, was really common. In the next slide, I can show you um, Caesar Augustus um, was kind of the first big emperor of Rome. Um, his, his father, adopted father, uh, uh, Julius Caesar, uh, was deified after he died, and so Augustus was called the son of God. Um, he was also called the Prince of Peace because he ushered in a reign of peace called the Pax Romana. So Caesar Augustus was the son of God, the Prince of Peace, our great heavenly savior. Um, and every year on his birthday, we would they would proclaim the gospel uh, about Caesar Augustus, um, the son of God, the Prince of Peace. Um, these are politically charged terms. So here's a... Uh, an inscription um, written about Caesar Augustus um, in the, uh, before, uh, just before the first century. It says, Whereas the providence that ordains our whole life has established with zeal and distinction that which is most perfect in our life, by bringing Augustus, who she filled with virtue as a benefaction to all humanity, sending to us and to those after us a Savior, and then in brackets there it's the, it's the same Greek word for Jesus, who put an end to war and brought order to all things, The birth of the God was the beginning of good tidings. The word is gospel, euangelion, to the world through him. The birth of Caesar Augustus was the beginning of the good news. This is pretty amazing. The only time Caesar Augustus is mentioned in the Bible is in Luke when we're talking about the birth of Jesus. And in that text, we call Jesus the Prince of Peace. So watch out for how politically charged Luke's gospel is. And ask yourself why that's been erased in the West and why we don't hear about that. Hmm. To domesticate the text if we don't want to be challenged by it. Um, so we know that Caesar is Lord. We know that uh, Augustus is the son of God, prince of peace. There was once a competition to see who could come up with the best idea to bring honor to Augustus. And the idea that won was to rename the months after the, the great Caesars. I was born in July. That's Julius Caesar. Who was born in August? You're Augustus. That's your month. Um, so our life is still, our, our imagination, our consciousness is still so so shaped by this kind of Roman imperialism. Um. There's a video I want to show you quickly because it, it represents um, a, a cry of pain and anguish um, by someone. So, so I want you to imagine Paul's audience: people suffering under Roman oppression. They've lost their land. They're vulnerable to uh, exploitation, to sexual violence. Um, they're they're things are being stolen from them, they don't exist in the imagination of Roman rulership. And uh, there was a, a event this summer where the Pope uh, came to Edmonton to formally apologize for the uh, colonial oppressive history of residential schools in Canada. And this Cree woman who lives not far from Calgary um, in Mosquich just just north, north of us, like by two hours or less, um, attended the, the visit of the Pope and she cried out in this grief song this protect our sacred land protect our sacred land and, and, and she sort of sang it and it sounds similar to the melody of Oh Canada and I wanted you to, to watch this and, and it's only like 90 seconds and think of the great anguish of Paul a Palestinian Jew living under Roman oppression and what who the people were in the house churches in Rome were they people who were unemployed and lost land in the country and all had to f- flock to the city for work I wonder how many of you live in Calgary because you came here for work uh, and, and, and so let's uh, play this and, and hear the, the anguish.
1: A fist raised to the sky, a woman's voice carrying over the crowd in song. This was Muskegee's Monday, the first day of the papal tour.
2: Moments earlier Pope
1: Francis had apologized for generations of cruelty and harm but then only that voice, its strength, and undeniable emotion. To many, it sounded like O Canada, the language, to those who know it, unmistakably Cree. Her eyes seemed to reveal so much pain, the final notes building to a deep cry. This wasn't part of the program and then still before the pope the woman shouts Her words carrying so much passion i turned my back i said hi
2: hi and i shook it off that's enough because i wouldn't let it hurt me anymore
1: her name is sapiko and she says what she's saying in moscow wasn't the canadian anthem at all
2: no that's not all canada that's our village in the language of the four winds after the song i spoke the law to him the law of these lands Hereby served the spoken law, we the daughters of the great spirit and our tribal sovereign members cannot be coarsened into any law or treaty that is not the great law. We have appointed chiefs on our territories, you convert yourselves accordingly.
1: Her spontaneous moment of courage has been met with praise from both those who were there and the millions more who watched from afar. Sepiko says the pain she felt that day was shared and not hers alone. When she finished, she let that pain go.
2: Yeah, I felt powerful. Everybody that was hurting through these residential schools, everybody that shared their stories with me, that's who I shook my fringes to free them from all the pain. That's what I felt.
1: A deeply personal unburdening still echoing across Canada and around the world. Heather Yurick's West Global News, Edmonton.
0: Her voice sounds to me like Paul's when, from the beginning, Paul says, when he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for Paul and his people and all of creation surviving under uh, imperial subjugation. There's a quote in the first few verses of Romans chapter one, um, where Paul is uh, referencing a text from the, the minor prophet Habakkuk. It's a profound text. Uh, let's do Minor Prophets next, seriously, because Habakkuk, will like, unstoppable. Um, in, in Habakkuk 2, um, the prophet says, Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by faith. Moreover, wealth is treacherous. The arrogant do not endure. They open their throats wide as Sheol, like death they never have enough. They gather all nations for themselves and collect all peoples as if they are their own. That line there, but the righteous will live by faith. The people of God will not be these ones who are the arrogant, the wealthy, the, to the, the treacherously wealthy, uh, the ones who never have enough, no matter how much they buy, will we'll, 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 we'll never be satisfied, no matter how much more they achieve. Um, but that, that will not be God's people. God's people will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. And um, if you go uh, to the next slide, um, in Romans 1, 16 to 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, not Caesar's gospel. Jesus, the gospel about Jesus, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Not the Roman imperial way. The gospel according to Jesus, the lamb who was slain. Thank you, Anna. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. The book of Romans is written in the shadow of the empire. It's written as a, a, a cry to resist, to not collaborate, to not go along the d- stream, to not bend to the culture of more, 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 me, me, me. And this is our text. This is the book of Romans. Did you know that... Um, in the Roman uh, gospel, essentially was this. Tell me if this sounds familiar. So in in the imperial story of Rome, uh, the question of who we are is that we are the center of the universe. All roads lead to Rome. All roads lead to us. We are the apex of civilization. Um, Benevolence looks like us, helping the world become like us. So we have been blessed by the gods with virtue and abundance. Um, We are grateful for all the ways we've been blessed and it is our duty, as members of the apex of civilization, to go out into the world and help people become like us. Um, And, because we are grateful to our Father, that's right, um, the common term for Caesar in the Greco-Roman world was to call him the Father. And so you would say, our Father. Our Father, who art in Rome. That was the prayer. He's called our father because he is the father of the fatherland. It, did, it was not lost on, this week, on me this week, the amount of things I saw on Twitter um, when, when Queen Elizabeth uh, died, when it was announced that she died, um, people said, if you cannot grieve the monarch, grieve the mother. And it this struck me, our mother. I was like, no. My God, our father, looks like Jesus. My father does not live in a palace. He does not have a crown made of jewels. He is not the wealthiest person in the world. He did not have a home. He died with the faceless, nameless, indigenous people of the land. So I will not call anyone my father or my mother except Jesus. And that is what Paul is saying. when he, Whenever you hear our father in the New Testament, you compare the common father, which was Caesar, and so um, the, the, the gospel of Rome is that we are children of our father of the fatherland. And our only challenge as members, uh, you know, children of our father, uh, is those who resist our rule. Um, we are the ones best equipped to manage the world's resources, so we must manage the land well. Um, the good news of our civilization must be spread until every tongue confesses Caesar is Lord. Um, and we must help the uncivilized become civilized like us. And if they do not cooperate and agree, we cannot trust them to manage the resources in their land, so we go to war. It's the gospel according to Rome. Um, What's the phrase um, coined by, is it James A. MacDonald, in the beginning of residential schools? Kill the Indian, save the man. Is this, that's it. We must help the uncivilized become civilized. Uh, that's the imperial gospel and the imperial story. So the book of Romans, if we don't slow down and read it well and hear the anguish and sorrow, we might accidentally read it as chaplains to the empire when we ought to read it from the margins. Um, if you imagine yourself at a high school dance and you weren't one of the cool kids you know, up for prom king and prom queen on the dance floor, you got to read the book of Romans from the, the side of the dance floor, not as one dancing in the middle Read it from the margins. Read it, Paul the slave, to those who are suffering under this um, empire. It is astonishing um, that despite his unequivocal antipathy towards the empire, Paul refused to exclude Roman citizens from the circle of Yahweh's grace. He had every right, so did Jesus, to be like, we hate the Romans. They are our enemy. Ah." but he did not. Some of the most provocative things Jesus did, if you ever follow Jesus' miracles, especially in Matthew's Gospel, he's like, I'm here, you know, I'm not gonna remove anything from the law, and then he goes and heals someone with leprosy by touching the person with leprosy? Like, oh, that's kind of breaking the law. Okay, I don't know. It's like, it's sort of a provocative story. He touches a leper after saying, I've not come to remove anything from the law, and the law clearly says don't touch people with skin diseases. He touches it, but then maybe the audience is like, well, but it's a Jewish person with leprosy and like God, God's purity is contagious, so it's good. But then the very next one is a Roman centurion. Oh, to go from a Jewish person suffering with a skin disease that has been an outcast forever. So you're like on the farthest edge of the margins to then turn and heal the person dancing on the middle of the dance floor, <laughs> the Roman centurion is that no matter how against empire they are, they refuse to ever map and categorize a human being um, as an enemy. All people were included and welcome into the circle of Yahweh's grace. So I'm going to read Romans 1, um, 1 to 7 to you one more time, and then I'm just going to tell you a story. So I want you to notice a few things. He says, from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for God's good news, not, this would have been hers. not Caesar's, Caesar Nero is who was uh, emperor or Caesar while Paul was writing this. Um, for God promised this good news about his son, not Julius Caesar's son Augustus, God, son Jesus, ahead of time through his prophets in the holy scriptures. His son was descended from David, so he is a rightful heir to the throne. Remember how Jesus was crucified with the sign, King of the Jews? <laughs> That's a pretty politically loaded thing to put on top of a cross. Um, crucifixion was reserved for those who don't bend the knee to Caesar, so he does have a rightful claim to the throne. He's descended from David, but that's not why we, why we bow our knees to him. Um, he was publicly identified by God's Son with power through his resurrection from the dead. The Roman peace, the imperial peace, uh, is achieved because all the people are afraid of the death that they will bring you. And then you go see the people dying on a cross, and it's like, exhibit A, don't disobey, and there'll be peace. <laughs> peace through death. This is a conquering death, it's overcoming death, is why we bend the knee to Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received God's grace and our appointment to be apostles. This was to bring all Gentiles to faithful obedience for his sake. You who are called by Jesus Christ are also included among these Gentiles. So it's like we're going to live as an alternative people shaped by the dream of jesus not shaped by the dream of caesar we live in a different dream we're an alternative community we have an alternative economy to so those in rome who are dearly loved by god and called to be god's people grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ this would be a dangerous text to have in your back pocket while walking through the streets of rome in the first century I have um, a memory. When I was just given birth to my son, a little boy, he has like he had like blonde hair, and his name was Raven, and people were freaked out by that name Raven. Um, because of the hit sitcom for kids in the early 2000s called "That's So Raven," people would be like, "You can't name your son Raven. That's a name for black girls." And then the other thing I got was, "You can't name your son Raven. That's so indigenous. And I was told this. I had family members that were like, I refuse to let you name your son Raven because it's indigenous. And I was like, do you not realize how problematic that sounds? But anyway, I, it was like, we really liked Ravens. We climb mountains, and Ravens are the third smartest animal in the world. I think humans are like number eight. <laughs> I'm joking. But if you think about it, I mean, <laughs> look around. Um, so we named him Raven. And f- I have a very good friend. Her name's Jess. And she is indigenous. She's Chibua, uh, from, from Eastern Canada. Uh, and she has two little boys. And she came over to meet my baby boy. He's like five days old. And I hand this little bundle of perfection over to my friend Jess. And she's like, oh, does he have a name? I was like, yeah, his name's Raven. And she holds him. And she stops. And her shoulders kind of go down. And she says, wow, Nakela. And I love her. We're still good friends, so I can tell the story. I'm like, what? She says, must be nice. What? must be nice, wishing people thought your son was native. And it hit me. She said, I will give anything to help people not think my boys are indigenous so that they would be safer and they might have a better shot at life in this place. Must be nice to want to name your kid a native name. Oh, <laughs> I'm sitting there looking at my perfect little baby, and she's like, I would have given anything to be able to have the freedom that you have. And I was like, uh, I, it's not too late. Like, I just immediately like morphed Enneagram 3, like, I'll change his name. I don't want to cause conflict. I'm sorry. She says, no, I don't want you to change his name. I'm happy. I'm honored. I'm so happy that you get to have a child named Raven. I'm not mad at you for that. I'm not shaming you, you know, that, that I don't get that. I'm asking you to help me create a future where my boys could name their son Raven too. Help me create a future where my boys could be proud of their connection to the land and proud of their indigenous heritage and that they too could have a name uh, that means, you know, that, that is in English and could have a name uh, that honors our culture. And, and, and she was, it was very convicting for me. And I was struck with the way honor and shame works in our culture and in our society. Um, I was struck with how uh, the privilege I have of having this like blonde-haired little boy with this name. I remember um, today is the 21st anniversary of 9-11. Yeah? 9-11. I remember. at had hot rollers in my hair getting ready for junior high and uh, was watching the news and I didn't think it was real and it was, blew my mind. And uh, it wasn't a nice time to be Muslim in North America after that. Right? The amount of hate crimes and attacks on Muslim people. I remember there was speculation um, a couple years after 9-11 that all Muslim people in the United States of America should be registered. Do you remember that? Do you remember that talk? Yeah. And I remember the pastor of my church back then stood up and he said, if, and we were in Canada, I wasn't even the States, but it was, so it was kind of hypothetical, but he said, listen, if it does come into law, the Muslim people have to be registered. As your pastor, I encourage each and every one of you to go register, to stand in solidarity with the marginalized and the vulnerable. If every single one of us goes and gets registered, it will uh, render the whole registration system completely ineffective. Everyone go get registered. I thought that was a pretty powerful way of standing in solidarity with those who are suffering. Um, I also, this is my third one, I live in a duplex in Boness. We have the worst lawn on our street, and I, have, I know this for a fact. There's one that was competing with us for a while, but I think a new renter, there's a lot of renters on my street, um, came in and they neglect their yard. Not quite as much as us. I have the worst yard. My house is run down. Um, It feels embarrassing a lot of the time. Sometimes I'll feel down on myself and I'll be like ashamed of the state of my house, my yard, like the dishwasher on wheels that I have to hook to the sink and the way that baseboards are from the 80s and has survived a couple floods without being replaced and all the things. And whenever I have someone for dinner that I feel is important, isn't that amazing how our minds do that? I'm like, I don't want, they can't see my house, I'm so ashamed. And I'll clean and scrub and I'll put on the, the room smells so they don't smell what a house that has mold or whatever. Anyway. And it's amazing to me how um, the honor-shame system works where I'm like, ah, I need people to see me with honor and I, I should live in a nice big house with nice new things so that they would know I'm important and then they would respect me. And I'm reading the book of Romans over and over and over the last couple of weeks and I see the honor-shame dynamic so clear that Paul does not stand up and be like, I write to you from a big fancy house where everything is clean and smells nice and everything's put away. He says, I write to you from a rundown duplex in Boness. And it is his mission to give honor, not to seek to receive it. It is to outdo one another in honoring one another. It's to seek to give praise and give dignity rather than to receive it. And it struck me that I should be honored (laughs) because I know that there are people who live in much worse uh, living arrangements than I do. Uh, And if they came to my house and I was ashamed of my house, that would further shame them and they are God's people. And so how could I be more like Paul? and right from the edge of the dance floor, from the shadow of the empire, from the duplex and bonus. Where is Awaken Church in this narrative? Are we living in the center of the dance floor, or are we able to be a church that is faithful to the anguished cries of those in our neighborhood? Are we playing the Roman game, trying to climb the ladder, get more respect, more dignity? Is the goal of Christian mission, Christian discipleship, to own land? <laughs> have a family and kids, have a good job, pay taxes, and never rock the boat. Is that the goal? Because I bet you, you know, the Roman leadership would be like, that's a great goal. That's good for all of us. Yes, go off. Yes, own land, pay taxes, get a job. Don't question anything. Um, Is that awakened? Is that who we are? Because I would say Paul's theology of radical inclusion was deeply disorienting to both Jewish theological ethnocentrism and Hellenistic ideologies of superiority. In Greco-Roman antiquity, the cultural, economic, and political conflict between Jew and Gentile was considered the prototype of all human hostility. Imagine the conflict between Israeli and, and, and Palestinian. I think of the racial apartheid in South Africa and all of North America. Protestant loyalists and Catholic Republicans in Northern Ireland. Paul is seeking to bring people together, to not exclude anyone. He's imagining a radical hospitality that begins on the margins, not in the center. Think of Moses. Moses wasn't quite at home in Egypt, was he? Nor could he be at home with his enslaved kin. Moses was a third culture kid. Not at home with his Egyptian kin. Not at home with the enslaved uh, kin. Um, and so he did what any of us would do if in that kind of third culture, I don't belong, is just go live in the suburbs and start a family and not worry about it and not get political. Um, and so his life in the suburbs with Sephora couldn't exactly be called home either. God called him to speak truth to power, to bring both the Egyptians and the Hebrews out from under this imagination of empire. And so I at my beloved church. Um, in conclusion, I want to say that God's dream is bigger than we have imagined. God's dream is bigger than the nuclear family. Um, God's dream is bigger than private, you know, personal salvation. Just as Paul is seeking to engender an alternative experience of home for Christian communities in a city that could never feel like home, then perhaps his letter to the Romans could help us shape a home together in our world where so many have been rendered unworthy of home, of homeless, uh, people rendered homeless, rendered displaced, rendered exiled. Paul calls the Roman Christians in this letter um, and therefore the awakened Christians to join in the lament of creation, the lament of Holy Spirit in the face of imperial destruction. Romans is not about individual salvation or personal righteousness as much as it is a political collision course with Rome. Paul refuses to pledge allegiance to Caesar. He reveres the slain lamb. Paul envisions a salvation for all living beings. A garden salvation, a naked and unashamed salvation, where there is an abundance, where there is enough. He dreams of a home for God here on earth, a home for all the earth within God. He dreams of a church that engages in restorative justice, peacemaking, and lament. I was reminded this week that the place where Martin Luther King was shot um, went on to become a, a memorial, and there's a plaque there uh, quoting the text in Rev, uh, sorry, in Genesis when Joseph's brothers mock him: uh, "Where are you, O oh dreamer? Where are your dreams now?" And I was reminded of how there are people in our midst and in our community right now that have had big dreams. The Book of Romans comes from a big dream. So we may we be a church whose imagination is shaped by more. <laughs> An imagination that is shaped alternative to the dominant culture and the dominant narrative. So we welcome you dreamers. And we want to be a people who create home in a world that only feels like home for a few. And so this is our work. This is the work that Romans will call us to. I think you'll be blown away what you notice when we read Romans through this lens. So let me pray for all of us, and then Kathy's going to bring us home to the communion table. So let's bow our heads and pray together. Uh, Loving God, creator God, ancient God. We know that you know each of us, uh, that you know everybody that lives in this land. You know the cries of every uh, person living in anguish and sorrow. We pray that you help us to hear what you hear. That you help us to be silent for a moment now and again, that we might hear the intercedings of your spirit groaning on our behalf and on behalf of this land. I pray that you give us courage to swim against the current as a little church in a big city. Help us be a church uh, that dreams of an alternative economy, an alternative system of justice and forgiveness, an alternative community of welcome and hospitality. May we be shaped by the slain lamb, be shaped by the one who dared uh, to die among the crucified peoples. So help us to extend honor downward, as you have done on the cross shape us, I pray, and go with us in these uh, coming weeks as we uh, pursue you in your book uh, of Romans. We pray in the name of our wounded healer, in the name of our resurrected Lord. Amen.